Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Shane Claiborne. Shane is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. Shane worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Letter Christians, a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. Shane is a champion for grace, which has led him to jail, advocating for the homeless and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. Now Grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and help stop gun violence. Shane's books include Jesus for President, Red Letter Revolution, and his newest book, Beating Guns, among many others. He has been featured in a number of films, including Another World is Possible and Ordinary Radicals. Shane speaks over 100 times a year at denominational gatherings, festivals, and conferences all around the globe. His work has appeared in Esquire, Christianity Today, Time, and the Wall Street Journal, and he's been on everything from Fox News and Al Jazeera to CNN and NPR. So let's welcome Shane to the show. All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, and Shane, thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Oh, that's uh, it's all good, man. I'm glad to be on the show with you. Great, great. Well, we'll jump right in then. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your faith journey, what that's looked like. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, uh, we've got f- four decades of uh, journey here, but... Um, uh, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, East Tennessee, in the Bible Belt, and I I, uh, I I grew up Methodist. And you know, I can remember in middle school going to the altar and dedicating my life to Jesus. I there, you know, there's definitely those moments that were instrumental, you know, in kind of uh, uh, marking that spiritual journey. Uh, I, sometimes I joke, you know, that we would go to the same retreat every summer and get born again, again. Uh, but yeah. you know, I, I can remember that. And I got kind of, uh, I guess curious beyond the Methodist church. So I joined this Pentecostal church that met in a big old warehouse kind of space. And I loved it. It was like, uh, they, they, believed in miracles they believed in healing they you know rebaptized me by dunking me none of that methodist sprinkling stuff you know and (laughs) and and then you know i I went to college and um shortly after that and really began to lean into a lot of uh uh catholic folks who were an inspiration to me including mother Teresa, you know and others and so uh i'm sort of a spiritual mutt you know i've been formed by all that i still got the the Methodist uh, Wesleyan fire in me and the Pentecostal fire and the, you know, Catholic roots. So I, all, all that's a part of who I am. And uh, I went to Eastern University up in Philly. And that's what first got me up, uh, you know, north. My, my I can remember my aunt saying, be careful, you're going to get Yankee-fied up there, you know. And uh, so I went up and uh, been there 25 years. It was when I was in undergrad that uh, a group of homeless moms 
had moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. And so they were living in this abandoned, you know, this old abandoned cathedral. And sadly, the Catholic church gave them an eviction notice and said, you're trespassing. And if you're not out within two days, you could be arrested. And we read, we read that, you know, in the newspaper on our Christian college campus. And that lit a fire in us. You know, I, I can remember uh, we held a prayer meeting which was a, a very natural response at, you know, our Christian right. college. And, but we really, as we were praying, we, we felt like we were throwing our hands up at God and saying, God, we need you to do something. And we felt God saying back to us, I did do something. I made you, you know, get, get down there. Yeah. Yeah. So we organized a movement of solidarity with those families. And uh, on the front of that cathedral, they had hung a banner that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? So that, that was another one of those powerful moments for me, you know, and uh, that started a student movement and organization that's still around, but it also ended up being the catalyst for our community at the Simple Way, where I've been for the last uh, 20 years or so in North Philly. That's awesome. What what would you say, like, what's, I mean, you, you mentioned how those different faith traditions are still part of your, your faith currently. Like, what's, what what do you think is, like, different and what's still the same? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, I feel like most um, streams of Christianity have some real beautiful gems and treasures to offer and maybe a few bones you got to spit out, you know, uh, yeah. So, you know, like with the Methodist, there's such a history of um, caring about social issues, you know, um, yeah. and uh, so poverty and abolition of slavery and um, things like the death penalty, you know, that's all a part of the teaching of the Methodist Church. And also, you know, it's true of the Catholic Church, too. Um, but, you know, I, I love the, the Pentecostal fire, too. I feel like there's a lot of liturgical traditions that um, uh, we, we just need a, need a fresh touch of the spirit, you know. So I've, I've embraced, yeah. tried to embrace the best of those streams and, and, uh, and you know, um, challenge the things that need to be challenged or, you know, find my way through the midst of it. Yeah, I like that. What spiritual practices have been meaningful for you? Well, like it was about 10 years into our community life that we we ended up uh, finding that we're, we were in a lot of ways better activists than we were prayers. You know, I think I grew up focusing on prayer, but also seeing that prayer, if we're not careful, prayer can be a place to hide from responsibility. You know, like the politicians and the preachers that offer prayers after every mass shooting without doing the stuff required to stop mass shootings, you know. So I think we became activists. But then we came back to prayer and we, we created this book uh, called Common Prayer. And uh, there's a, you know, several different versions of it, but it has a, prayers for the morning, prayers for the evening, and uh, prayers for the, mid, you know, the middle of the day. And uh, some of those are prayers that I learned in India. They're old prayers that we dusted off, you know, and there's 50 songs in the back of it. So that's you know, been a really vital part of my spiritual life that that this book was kind of a product of our own quest to um, hold together 
prayer and activism, you know, or as the scriptures say, you know, faith and works and not to separate those, but to hold them together like two sides of of scissors, you know, they really have to to work together. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, I'll have to check that out. I think, I think as someone who grew up uh, conservative, I think prayer can be, for me, at least one of the hardest things because it feels, I don't know, um, it feels so rote at times yet. And that's so, but sometimes it can be so commonplace that help, it's helpful to have something, some written out prayers just to lean into. And uh, sure, and we leave space for kind of the, the spontaneous prayers of our hearts, you know, and things like that. Right. Uh, but there's, there's prayers that, um, I guess when I was in India, I worked with Mother Teresa and the nuns, you know, in Calcutta. And one of the things that I learned is every day they were praying the same prayers. And the prayers were not just requests for God, but they were more like kind of calling ourselves to action, you know. So one of the prayers we prayed in India that's in our book is, um, uh, may every person I come in contact with feel your presence in my soul, Jesus. May I leave off your fragrance everywhere I go. So that idea that we're to leave off the fragrance of Jesus, that we're to, as Paul said, live um, the life I live, I live it's not me, but Christ in me living it. So, you know, that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Those are beautiful prayers. So I, you know, I try to pray those every day. Let me ask, how did you, how did you get to a place where you're like, I'm volunteering with Mother Teresa? How how did that even, how did that start? Uh, I I mean, I, I really admired all the, these wonderful saints that had already passed on to the other side. You know, some of my heroes were folks like Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Martin Luther King, you know, Oscar Romero, St. Francis and Claire, and that beautiful youth movement in Assisi, Italy, you know, but they were all gone. And, And so then, you know, you start going, who, who are the contemporary saints? You know, who are the people that are uh, radical for Jesus today. And, and Mother Teresa was still alive. And the great thing about being 20 years old, you know, is no one's convinced you that, that anything's impossible. So we, we, you know, we, some of my college friends and I just said, let's see if we can do an internship in India. And we wrote her a letter and didn't hear back. And that didn't stop us. We called from a payphone. Uh, incidentally, I don't think people even know what those are. You know, you put quarters in them and stuff. So we called India and uh, she picked up the phone and I said, wow. can we come work with you? And and basically she ended up saying, yeah, come on out. And we spent the summer in India uh, working in, you know, places I had read about in books, but, you know, the home for the dying that she started, the, the orphanages. And there's so much that shaped me from that experience. You know, Mother Teresa, one of her great lines was, we're not called to do great things, but only small things with great love. What's important isn't how much we do, but how much love we put into every act. So, you know, that idea of doing small things with great love uh, has, has really become a part of my sort of spiritual DNA. Let me let me stop on that if I can. I I feel like, I don't know, Shane, if you'd have the same impression. Certainly, I think of evangelical conservative Christianity, there's this, was at least in my formative years, which I don't think are too far off from yours, this kind of push for like doing great things for God. And I, I feel like, I feel like that's kind of a, problem, at least from my perspective in our society at large, we all want to do big things when a bunch of small things can have the same effect as one big thing. 
I think we all want to see the world transformed, you know, and there are big things that happen, like the abolition of slavery, yeah. you know, the civil rights movement. But, you know, you look at those and you think, how do they start? Well, they started with little acts of courage, Rosa Parks yeah. staying on that bus, yeah. you know, yeah. folks that were um, refusing to hate even the people that were threatening their lives and burning down their houses, you know, Dr. King saying, we will still love you no matter how hateful you become to us. Um, so, you know, that, that idea that love is at the very center of everything we do, but it's, you know, um, the images that Jesus gives for the kingdom of God, you know, in one sense, the kingdom of God is huge language. Uh, it was the same word as empire, you know, so the Roman empire, Jesus is kind of flipping that language and giving a vision that's different from Rome's, right? That the world, uh, that the kingdom of God would come and it's an upside down kingdom, you know, where the last are first and the first are last, the mighty are cast from their thrones, the lowly are lifted. But what's interesting is as Jesus describes it, um, the images are often very small and subtle, you know, like salt mm -hmm. in the world, you know, to season the world. That's what we're to be like light, which you can't even really wrap your hands around, you know, but it's it, to pervade, you know, this pervasive force that, that we're to be light in the darkness or like yeast in the dough. We're to, you know, be this sort of um, uh, substance that brings love into the world. That's who we're to be as the people of God. And one of my favorites, of course, is the, the mustard seed, you know, which was, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I've seen the, the real biblical mustard seeds are so small you can hardly see them. And they don't turn into the giant uh, redwood type, you know, cedars of Lebanon, but it's this kind of invasive plant, in fact, that it's more like kudzu than, you know, the cedars of Lebanon. But it, that's, those are the images that we have of the kingdom of God. So um, Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker Movement, again, one of my heroes, she said that sometimes we think we, you know, we need to be bigger and bigger, but actually the kingdom of God sometimes grows smaller and smaller. You know, like that yeast that takes, you know, and, and it is about transforming the world. But it, the power isn't coming from the top down, but from the bottom up. And I think that's exactly where we get it wrong. You know, is a lot of our methodology and our, our vision for how the world changes is that this all is the same way the world does stuff. You know, power trickles down or wealth trickles down. And kind of Jesus gives us a different vision that this, this boils like water from the bottom up. I love it. I love it. Uh, talk about kind of how you got into this this movement or work you're a part of now, really this kind of peacemaking and uh, stuff against gun violence. Well, I grew up uh, saying I was pro-life very passionately, you know, saying I was pro-life. But yeah. I came to, to realize how narrowly we defined what it means to be pro-life, um, yeah. often really only thinking about one issue, uh, abortion. And we would, I think a lot of folks that say that we're pro-life would be more accurate to say that we're pro-birth or anti-abortion because on what I saw is that on almost every other issue of life other than abortion, uh, Christians were not the champions of life and were often the obstacles of, I think, life really flourishing. And, um, and so I, I began to think about gun violence and especially the death penalty, because on those two issues in particular, um, it's clear to me that if Christians were more consistently pro-life, we would see uh, these things radically change in our society. I mean, with the death penalty, um, the Bible belt is the death belt. 
the states yeah. where n these are also the formerly Confederate states, right, that held on to slavery the longest or the states that still hold on to the death penalty. But they're also the states that have Christian legislators and Christian governors and, you know, that go to church on Sunday worshiping the executed Jesus and then champion the death penalty on Monday. So I found that problematic. And with the guns, um, the highest gun-owning demographic in America is Christians, white evangelical Christians specifically, mm -hmm. that literally, as we worship the Prince of Peace, we're the folks that are packing heat. You know, we're, we're the ones trying to carry the cross of Jesus in one hand and a weapon in the other. And it became impossible for me to really reconcile those. You know, I, I began mm -hmm. to really think when Jesus said, love our enemies, um, he meant we shouldn't kill them. You know, we can't simultaneously prepare to kill folks that we're called to love. And um, and so it was 10 years ago, man, that we we really got inspired by the biblical prophets who cast a vision, Micah, Micah and Isaiah, both cast a vision of a world where God's people will beat swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks, literally transforming metal that was crafted to kill into metal that's now crafted to protect and cultivate life. Um, and so the swords to plows thing caught our attention. And, you know, we don't have a lot of swords uh, in the U.S., but we have uh, a, a whole lot of guns. We've got more guns than people, even, wow. even though that two-thirds of Americans don't have, choose to live without guns. We still have more guns right. than people. So we invited people to donate guns if they wanted to. And the first gun that we got 10 years ago was an AK-47, a, remi a reminder that we have military style weapons that are still allowed on our streets, you know, guns that are literally designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And so we did it live on, on a stage at the World Cafe in Philly. We transformed this gun into garden tools and uh, we've been doing it ever since, man. And, and we've done, you know, hundreds of hundreds of guns. We've got a national network now called Raw Tools, which uh, in case anybody missed it, that's war flipped backwards, you know, is raw, yeah. raw tools. And we're, we're trying to, you know, transform guns. And it's, it's not just symbolic. I think that's kind of how I started thinking of it is it's a powerful symbol. But we felt really moved by the spirit um, to invite folks that were directly impacted by gun violence to take the hammer. And literally, we had a bunch of moms and dads that had lost their kids. Yeah. And there was a moment where we said, you know what? If you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to take the hammer, and I'll never forget one of the first times this happened, this mom with a picture of her kid who was killed in Philly on her shirt, yeah. Miss Ryan, she, she began to beat on this gun. And tears rolling down her face, she said, this is for my boy. And it really felt like she was not just transforming a piece of metal, but she was participating um, in this holy work of, of healing the wounds of violence in the world, of, of restoring the world from, uh, to, to really what God intended it to be. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, it, it, in the church we have a word, sacramental, that means, you know, holy mystery. Um, and I don't use that word lightly when I say it. It feels like what we're doing is sacramental in the sense that it, it creates a holy space that honors people's grief and trauma. And um, uh, 
Um, we've had all kinds of stories, you know, at the forge. One guy that hit a gun 18 times, and he later told us that he had uh, actually killed an 18-year-old. And so he was praying as he hammered that God would heal his heart and the heart of the family, the hearts of the family members of the man he killed. And, um, you know, we've had folks that have lost their loved ones, like my friend uh, Sharon Risher, whose family was killed in the uh, Charleston uh shooting in, in Emmanuel AME and she named all nine of them her mom you know her cousins her family members that were killed and uh, afterwards she's become a dear friend now she said you know there's a part of me that realized everything that in the back of my mind I thought I might have thought that I would like to do to Dylan Roof you know I just began to take it out on that gun and you know so it creates that space where really some healing can happen and um, and these, these, these folks like Sharon Risher are just heroes of mine. So I know like a lot of folks are, um, not watching, but listening, but I did bring a few visuals here, you know, of our, the, 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 the you know, the, the plows that we make and the shovels and I make crosses now. And, uh, and even these, uh, the handles are made out of the wood stock, you know, from the, the, the guns. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's holy work, powerful work. Yeah. You know, something I heard kind of. Uh, in your discussion is the word idolatry and I, I imagine this is something that you've thought about in your work and I wonder like you know I, I live in Colorado in the Denver metro area who's we have faced uh, too much too much I feel like my whole adult life has been kind of just interspersed with mass shootings in the you know the, the metro area that I live and I think about you know I can't remember. Was it last spring, early this spring? I want to say there was the shooting in Boulder, and I thought about like it wasn't able to happen with COVID and such. But I thought about like trying to do some kind of gathering where we speak against like the gun idolatry in our nation, and I just what what I see is like a worship of guns. And and, and I'll just be like full disclosure, Shane. Like I say this as a gun owner. Like I have I have guns safely stored in my house, but like. Talk about like the the gun idolatry in our nation, and I'm assuming you'd agree with that perspective. Yeah, and first of all, when I think of Colorado, I mean the the the, the tragedy tragedy in all of this is that many of these towns that we think of are now known for the horrible massacres yeah. that happen there. You know, you think of Colum Columbine, Aurora. I mean, even just where you are, you know, and. And Boulder, Thousand Oaks, you know, like these towns that are now defined, that, that's become a defin de definitive part of their identity. It's so heart wrenching. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, like Raw Tools is based out of Colorado Springs. So there's no, not, a, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that that's, you know, where our, our sort of center is. Um, and so when Boulder happened, we were able to do a number of things to respond to that tragedy. Um, namely remembering the victims and folks that knew them, you know, kind of centering their stories. And we did a weapons transformation. We also worked with all kinds of churches in the Boulder area uh, to create a network of safe surrender sites. So places that people can get rid of guns because folks often don't know how to get rid of guns. You know, you inherit yeah. 10 guns from your grandfather, yeah. you, you know, or you rethink your handguns in the house or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to get rid of them. So we're trying to make that easier. So we dedicated a chop saw to a church there in Colorado when mm -hmm. we were out there. Um, but you know, when you, when you use the, the word idolatry, which we use in our book, beating guns, um, yeah. uh, we, 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 um, 
don't think of that as hyperbole or exaggeration or, you know, I, I think yeah. idolatry has different forms in different generations. You know, we're not just talking about worshiping Baal, you know, in, in like the scriptures, but idols have always been things that we attribute God-like quality to. And we treat, yeah. with, we, we treat with this kind of holy reverence as if they are God, even though they're not. You know, and they make promises and we make we, we expect things of them. You know, yeah. uh, guns promise to deliver us uh, self-determination, protection, you. you know, um, rid the world of evil. I mean, these things that we, we really, as, as scripture says, some may trust in chariots and some may trust in horses, but we're actually to trust yeah. in God. And so there's something that happens to us when we put our faith in these weapons to protect us and I just to like make it plain for folks that are watching I'll explain to the folks that aren't you know I've got a bible case here that a pastor gave me and he said this is one of the the top selling bible cases in America and it doesn't look it doesn't look like much until you open it up and you realize that it, it's actually a concealed carry case that says the holy bible on top of it you know but it's literally designed and marketed for Christians to conceal and carry, you know, and, and to bring to church. And you look at that and you're like, when we, wow, I mean, th this is deep, dark stuff we're talking Next about, level. you know. Next <laughs> level, man. So, um, but, I, you know, I, I think that uh, when we look at the gun and the cross, mm -hmm. there are two really different versions of power that we're offered. Mm -hmm. And one of them says, I'm willing to kill. And the other says, I'm willing to die. And that's literally what the early Christians said, is for Christ we can die, but we cannot kill. Um, and, and, you know, Jesus said, greater love is no one than this than to lay down their life for another. So we certainly have always been willing to die as Christians. And I think there's no greater love than that. But the moment that we begin to foresee taking up violence to try to, counter violence. I think that's where we diverge from the model of Jesus. And to, to make it real plain, uh, Peter did exactly that. When the soldiers came yeah. to get Jesus, Peter picked up a sword, tried to protect Jesus. And Jesus's response is stunning. He scolds Peter, you know, tells him, put the sword away. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he heals the man that Peter wounded, puts his ear back on, right? And what the early Christians, the takeaway from, for, for them was when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. Because if ever there was a case to be made for using violence to try to protect the innocent, for standing your ground, right? Like Peter had the, the textbook case, and yet Jesus is showing us another way, right? That we, we actually do not interact with evil by mirroring that evil. Uh, Jesus is showing us another way, even such a scandalous way that he loves his enemies so much he's willing to die for them, you know? And, and so I think that's like, the, that's the gospel. And, and in some ways, even the folks who are writing scripture knew that it looks like foolishness to the, you know, the, the logic and the wisdom of this world. But it's Jesus, I think, that's t teaching us a way to transcend 
the evil and the violence of the world we live in without mirroring it. Well, this is really good stuff. I'm I'm wrote down two things. I'm writing down a lot of things, uh, as I always do. But two things stood out to me from what you just said there. One is about the violence to counter violence. And then I'm thinking about, you didn't use this word, but that this would be the, the kind of broader word, the idea of just war, uh, that there is just war, which, um, you know, I'm thinking about, again, as we're recording this, I think whatever day this is, Thursday, <laughs> Uh, Thursday, I think, in the week, and certainly at the beginning of this week, was just the kind of crisis and, and tragedy unfolding before our eyes in Afghanistan as as uh, American troops had pulled out and the Afghan forces had, had collapsed. And we're seeing just this mass humanitarian crisis, which I'm, I'm hoping and praying is, is being resolved. But I think about kind of the impetus to that, this ongoing tragedy, was this belief that we can... You know, we can counter violence with violence. Yeah. I mean, I think it couldn't be much clearer in Jesus's life and teaching that, um, I mean, he even says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you this, mm-hmm. you know, and he's showing us a way that we don't mirror uh, the, the evil and the violence done to us. You know, this idea that we live by the sword, we die by the sword. I mean, we've kind of learned that lesson all too well. And, um, you know, you have a terrible event like September 11th, and the response yeah. is is often violence, you know. And, and one of the heroic voices in all this, I know a lot of folks listening may be too young to remember September 11th, but after September 11th, there was a group of family members who lost their loved ones, their, their immediate loved ones, spouses, children, moms and dads. And they got a group together called that became known as Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. Many of them were fueled by their faith. And their whole motto became, our grief is not a cry for war. You know, violence is the problem, not the solution. And, um, and they went on delegations to Iraq and Afghanistan. And eventually I went on a similar delegation, not with them, but with a larger coalition. And, um, yeah. and you know, I was there during the bombing of Baghdad. I was there as a, as a you know, a Christian and, and uh, a peacemaker to try to voice opposition to the war uh, as it unfolded. And I learned so much being there. And, and my dad was in the military. You know, I come from a background where it was very easy to reconcile military service with Christian faith, you know. But when I was in Iraq, um, that's where I really became convinced that um, we are when 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 you look at the history of the united states we it's almost hard to imagine our country without guns and without yeah. violence without mil- military strength i mean how do you take native folks land you know how do you subjugate african people so so much that we're talking about you know goes back to that inaugural sin outside the Garden of Eden, Cain killing his brother Abel, and it said that the blood cried out from the ground, and yet we've been doing it ever since, you know, and we find new sophisticated ways to do it with drones, but we, you know, I mean, nuclear weapons, uh, we're, there's only nine countries in the world, I believe, out of 196 countries that have nuclear weapons, and we have half of them. Um, in the U.S., you know, and we're the only country that's ever used them uh, on, on a civilian population. And, uh, and we did it in one week, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so there's this idea that, like, 
that violence is is our only solution that i think the 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 jesus's life and teaching is a direct rebuttal of that and i'll just say this you know when i was in iraq uh one of the iraqi intellectuals i got to know he said you know the us knows that we have some weapons because they have the re- they have the receipts from them um uh, you know yeah. 150 countries have gotten their arms from their military weapons from the U.S. And so like the, the 60 Bell helicopters that Saddam Hussein used to gas the Kurds came from the United States, right? So we've, we've kind of seen this, this uh, thing unfold in, in such terrible ways, and yet we're still selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, right? Like, this is the crazy thing is, on September 11th, 15 of the 19 terrorists were from Saudi Arabia who we're still selling weapons to, and yet we, you know, went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and it, you know, it just, just absolutely breaks my heart. And I've been to Afghanistan. I've been to Iraq. Um, and uh, so my heart's breaking as I see you know, what's happening in Afghanistan right now. I remember this group of young people that I stayed with and I visited in Kabul, and they were 15 years old, and they've studied Martin Luther King. They've studied Gandhi. You know, they're, they're, they're envisioning a world free of violence. Um, and yet they've experienced violence their entire lives. You know, uh, Afghani- Afghanistan's been at war um, pretty much my entire life, yeah. decades and yeah. decades. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing, I think the sad thing that I see, at least in Afghanistan, is we think about like, you know, now we're seeing images of the Taliban commandeering left behind U.S. military vehicles. We think about how the U.S. was bombing uh, Taliban persons in like bomb-proof shelters that the CIA had provided for the Taliban back what 30-ish years ago, and just kind of this—I don't know what the word would be—spitting out of control. Um, you know, this we kind of we tend to think that like, we're going to solve something by promoting violence. Yet it just seems like inevitably things just spin out of control worse. Yeah, I mean, we did the same thing with Saddam Hussein. We really helped him, you know, come yeah. to power. And, and you know, the, the, I think that that um, when I look at Afghanistan, um, I mean, you know, there, there's now, I mean, billions and billions of dollars worth of military equipment that is, yeah. uh, you know, f- fair game for the Taliban, Apache helicopters, Humvees, you know. And all of the damage that can be done, and and um, and our own military spending. I mean, you know, it's it, Jesus said that get the log out of our own eyes. So it's, you yeah. know, we we look at all these other countries and say they shouldn't have nuclear weapons, and at the same time, we've got the firepower of fifty thousand Hiroshima bombs. Like we could, you, there comes a point where you go, how many times do we need to blow up the world? You know, like like real, do we really? Uh, and especially for Christians, right? Like, where does an atomic bomb even have a place for someone who's a follower of the Prince of Peace? Like, how do we even have an idea that we should have a bomb that can kill 100,000 people? You know, like, like I, I think that's where I really long for Christians to be a consistent voice for life. Mm-hmm. And I still care about abortion reducing the number of abortions. But I also believe for me to be pro-life means I care about the hundred lives lost every day to gun violence. I care about ending the death penalty. I care. And the, the irony is so many Christians that are praying for Afghanistan right now 
are the same folks that don't want to welcome any Afghan refugees, you know? So we've got to be more consistent in this, that we can't say we love you as long as you stay in your country. (laughs) Like there's a desperation right right now that to show the compassion of Jesus, as he himself said, is, is we're going to be asked, uh, when I was a stranger, did you welcome me? Um, and, and so I, I want to be able to say, yeah, we, we sure did, you know, and, um, as much as I want to see a more stable Afghanistan, I certainly think those who care about the people of Afghanistan should be the biggest champions for welcoming refugees and immigrants. And this is not a partisan thing. Um, yeah, it's a spiritual thing, you know, and Donald Trump had the lowest numbers of refugees and immigrants coming in that that we've had in recent history. But Joe Biden was set to have even lower numbers until Christians and others really advocated to raise the refugee ceiling uh, in our country. So all of these things, these are not just political issues. I think they're an extension of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself, which is the greatest command, you know, that and loving God, like they're inseparable. Yeah, I I feel like that's so important is to I don't know, when we get into labeling things as political, it just becomes about red versus blue. When I, f- I, I feel like if we can say this is a spiritual issue, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then we're, we can kind of wash away to some extent those things. Well, I think we can also like take the word back a little bit because for, sure. for yeah. like, yeah. I think what, what has become really distasteful in people's mouth is, a, is, a, is the partisanship, right? Like, yeah. like, like that this yeah. is about the Republicans or the Democrats, whereas I'm not partisan at all, but I do believe like the word politics, the core yeah. of it is polis, the people. Right. So I think right. we do have to say like that in some ways politics invites us to imagine what does love look like in the form of policy. So what does it look like to, for our country to be driven more by love than by fear when we think about refugees and immigrants? And no one's going to say we just, you know, need to fling open the border and, you know, not have any kind of process or regulation. But how do we welcome people well? Right. Knowing that when we welcome the widow and the orphan, we're welcoming Jesus and entertaining angels, you know. And so that's, I think, where we don't need to just act like the gospel of Jesus, which is always good news to the poor, has no political ramifications. But I think at the same time, we can push back on the partisanship because, I mean, when it comes to the death penalty, you know, Joe Biden hasn't ended the death penalty. He was for the death penalty for a while, has now switched, you know, on, on so many of these other issues. Their immigration's a good example. They're not partisan issues, you know. Um, yeah. But they're, they're, they're not about left and right. They're about right and wrong. And I think you're right. right. You know, in the, in the military budget, no matter whether the president is Republican or Democrat, one thing they keep doing is raising the military budget. Uh, while so many resources could be reallocated. I mean, you think of those billions and billions and billions of dollars spent in Afghanistan, all of the life-giving things that we could have done with that money to help Af- I mean, Afghanistan flourish. What have they said it would cost, like, $55 million to fix the pipes in in uh, in Flint? And it's like, you know, we, we spent that, uh, you know, I can't do math very well, hundreds and thousands of times over. You know, that could be that, that could be done easily without, you know, yeah. they're just not the political well. Well, I, I appreciate this conversation and I especially appreciate your emphasis on uh, 
political versus partisanship. That's one of the things that I try to emphasize. So I'm, I'm appreciating your emphasis on that too. Um, this I'm feeling the heaviness of this conversation. So even if it's for my own sake, give me and give our listeners some practical incremental steps we can take to 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 work for peace in our communities, in our nation, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, well, let me just start with, you know, you, you mentioned being a gun owner and I don't want to like uh, bury that in our conversation. I'm encouraged because we have entire groups of hunters against gun violence and gun owners mm -hmm. that are against assault mm -hmm. weapons on our streets. Like overwhelmingly, uh, usually like 70, 80 percent of gun owners want to see changes, uh, some basic yeah. changes, you know. And, yeah. and some of those are policy changes, background checks, de domestic abusers not having access to limits, yes. you know, reporting stolen guns, like just real sensible things, you know. Um, if you're on a no-fly list, you ought to be on a no-gun list, you know, things like that. So, like, there's just real basic stuff. Um, yeah. So I'm encouraged by that. And I think we've got to find common ground with people that we might not agree with on everything. Um, for those of us that are Christians, I think we've got to dig deep. And say, what does our faith call us to do right now? And I think of all people who should be the champions for life, you know, on, on these different issues. Uh, I, I would love to see Christians, you know, consistent with that ethic of life, saying every person is made in the image of God. And the last thing that I'll say is, um, I think proximity makes all the difference in the world. And a lot of times what we have at the core of our, our, our paralysis is not a compassion problem. It's a proximity problem. And it's a relationship yeah, yeah, problem. It's not yeah. that like Christians don't care about poor people. It's that there's an enormous gap between the lives of comfortable Christians and, and, and folks that are struggling to make it. So that's why I think the, the model of Jesus is so important. God leaves all the comfort of heaven, heaven and comes to earth on the margins born in a manger because there was no room in the inn, born in a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish body in the, as a refugee, you know, executed on the cross. So every, Jesus is, is God leaning in to the suffering of the world. And we're called to do the same, right? We're called not to pull ourselves away from the pain, but to lean in and to allow it to, to keep us up at night sometimes, to... to wonder what we can do in response. What does love require of me right now? Um, and, and that's, you know, I think that's the invitation is not to see these as uh, disparate, um, isolated issues, but that these are immigrants. Like that's not a debate. Those are neighbors to be loved, right. you know? Right. Um, and, and so on each of these, who are the people that are being directly impacted? Who's lives are, are being crushed by these policies or these wars and how do we amplify their voices how do we stand in solidarity with them because we know that when we stand with them we stand with christ yeah i love it uh we got to take a break but i love what you said about proximity matters i'm just thinking about like in my own relationship with my spouse like how much like being together <laughs> like helps like so much of uh, especially in suburbia, for those of us who live in suburbia, like we're so isolated from people who look different than us, different socioeconomic uh, spheres. Just, you know, I think just being near other people can make such a difference in in how we think and care and, and feel about them. Well, um, we are we do need to take a break. So let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions.
All right, we're back with Shane Claiborne. And Shane, this has been some great conversation. Really appreciate your thoughts here. Uh, these closing questions, yeah, you, too, you can take them as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, so if you're Pope for a day, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? What's that day look like for you? Wow, Pope for a day. Hmm. Well, I think probably, uh, I guess for starters, I'd get out of the Vatican, you know, and get into the sure. streets. And I, I love that Pope Francis has been doing that. You know, I think that mm -hmm. the when he came to Philly, he visited the prison. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that was really powerful, you know. So uh, I think, again, you know, being part of the problem is, is that isolation and um, the lack of proximity. So we got to, we got to be with the people. And um, yeah, I think, I think Francis is, is doing a pretty good job of that, but I sure hope I would do, uh, do that too. That's good. That's good. On theme for sure. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Oh man, there's so many. Uh, I think, I mean, immediately I think of my, my brother, Rich Mullins, great singer and songwriter. I got to know him a little bit. He was just a great dude. And I wish I had got to know him more, but he died in a car crash. You know, if y'all don't know his songs, check them out. Uh, yeah. pretty great. But of course I'd love to hang out with St. Francis. I think we'd get in a little trouble together. I love old Francis of Assisi, uh, back in the, the 1200s there, you know? So, um, those are a couple. Be a good little dinner yeah. dinner party there. You know, I just had an, had on another guest who mentioned Rich Mullins as, as someone they'd want to bring back. You know, when I think of Rich Mullins, I, I think I don't know if this would be a, a comparison you'd recognize. Uh, I think of for for many progressive Christians today, uh, Rachel Held Evans has become like a Rich Mullins type figure for so many of us. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I had the privilege of knowing Rachel a little bit too, and sure miss her. Um, but I think what they both, you know, had in common is this this room to be honest about, mm. you know, um, doubts and, you know, contradictions and struggles. And um, Rich sure had that. And what I know of Rachel, she did too, you know. And um, I'm pretty convinced that the world's not looking for Christians that are perfect, but they're looking for Christians that are honest. And uh, yeah. too, too often, like, we've... Uh, pretended that we're perfect and, and we really haven't been honest. So I, I, um, yeah, that, that's a good, that's a good, uh, little parallel though, between Rich and, and, uh, Rachel. He, he died in what, 94? Uh, yeah, it was about that. Cause I was with him. Um, I, I, we were together at, it would have been a little later than that. Cause I, we, we were together in 97 at Wheaton university out in the Chicago area. And then I think it was a year or so later he died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'll give fair disclosure. My guest, Steve Cuss, uh, folks, for our listeners, Steve Cuss' interview was a great interview. Uh, give him a shout-out here, too. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Wow. I, I really hope. I guess there's what I currently think history is remembering and what I want history to remember. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think right now, um, it's, it's just, uh, it would be irresponsible not to recognize that, that, um, Christians are not right now known foremost for our love. Um, mm. and yet that's what I hope, you know, a generation from now, that when people hear the word Christian, they, they think love. 
I'm not sure that's yeah. the case right now. So we've got some work to do uh, to make it so, but may it be so. That was the, the next question I was going to ask you. What do you hope for the future of Christianity? And, and I'm guessing that we'd be known for our love. Yeah, and we've got you know this whole movement called Red Letter Christians that derives our name from the the uh, you know Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. And mm-hmm. um, uh, we really resonate with Gandhi when he was about when he was asked about Christianity. He said, "I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians mm-hmm. acted more like him." So that's what we're after, and I I think that's really what we want to try to live out is a Christianity that reminds the world of Jesus. That that's what we're you know that's what it's all about anyway. Yeah. But we, have, we haven't always done that. Christians have not always reminded the world of Jesus. <laughs> we've often become known for the very things that Jesus spoke out against. And we've, uh, uh, you know, become known for excluding the people that Jesus included. So we, we got some work to do. But it begins with me. You know, I, I believe it begins with us. Just as Gandhi said, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. We need to be the change we want to see in the church. It was driving me crazy, so I had to look it up. Rich Mullins died September 19th, 1997. So that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I was I was certainly of the CCM age. Uh, so I remember, I remember that tragedy, unfortunately. Um, well, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, folks can find out more about the, the Red Letter Christians movement at redletterchristians.org. And we're on socials and everything too. Uh, and there's a place where you can sign up and see, you know, join join the red letter movement. Uh, I'm on all the socials too. I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It's just my name, Shane Claiborne. And um, in our little community in North Philly, uh, you can find it's thesimpleway.org. Oh, and if people want to check out our stuff made out of guns, Raw Tools, rawtools.org. You have a book coming out, yes? Yeah, it'll be next year, so it's still uh, probably got to hop off this this little talk with you and uh, start writing, man. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this will be out here later this year, early 22, so folks will be on the lookout for his book. So, Shane, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation, and let me leave you with a word of peace. May God's peace be with you. And also with you, my brother. Thank you, Lauren. Keep in touch, man. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace.